May we attend not to my words, but to what God is saying to us. Amen. Thank you, Mandy, for reading that so beautifully. You will have noticed that she followed the guidance in the, in the footnotes and read the word flesh rather than whatever gloss it is that the translators have chosen to put instead in the main text. If I have a text, I think it is Romans 7.18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is my flesh. Your web-based service recordings are just so impressive. I've listened to the series on Romans so far and been suitably intimidated. However, I do want to begin with a word of reassurance for Vincent. Vincent, it is not absolutely necessary for preachers to have a Scottish accent. (laughs) We're okay too. I want to begin with um, two of my favourite lines from our current Methodist hymn book, Hymns and Psalms. Isaac Watts, the great 18th century hymn writer, writing a hymn on what we are doing right now, Christian worship writes this. The sorrows of the mind be banished from this place. Religion never was designed to make our pleasure less. 18th century. Wonderful. Religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. It's number 487 in hymns and psalms. So, Peter began your excellent series in Lent with the shadow side of God. It was excellent, if I may say so, Peter. You are very fortunate to have him. And then it was Ian and justification by faith. Faith, he said, is not an excuse once you know you are justified by say faith. Not an excuse for just sitting down and saying, good, that's all right then. It demands a radically new way of living. Again, it was excellent. And again, you are fortunate to have him. And then Vincent, about how being baptized and buried in Christ, we escape from the shadow side of our lives. It was beautifully applied. You're not quite so fortunate there. Quite soon, Vincent will leave you. Make the most of him while you've got him. And now Romans chapter 7, and St. Paul saying in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, my flesh. And in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Superb material for Lent. So depressing. So gloomy. It seems to say that everything to do with the flesh and with bodies is bad. Not just unpleasant, but downright sinful. Hateful to God. 
What a sermon for that zealous young Scottish preacher Peter told you about, the one who boomed out his doom-laden sermon from a pulpit in Bangor 20 years ago, was it? Well, I've been invited on this Mothering Sunday to preach about flesh, and preach about flesh I shall. Can Paul be right? Can everything about the flesh be wicked? The wonderful feel of a baby's cheek against yours? The feel of the summer sun and the spring rain? Coming across a stunning woman or a drop-dead gorgeous man? An elderly couple holding hands. Skinny dipping together in a sun-drenched stream with the reeds and the willows caressing your limbs and the colours flashing by, dragonflies, swallows, kingfishers. Or a hug when your heart is breaking. Can Paul possibly mean that everything Everything about the flesh, the flesh that God gave us, is wicked? If that is what he thinks, surely he is a sad, sad man. Mind you, countless of sermons have said over the centuries, yes, that is exactly what he thinks. The vast majority of them preached by equally sad men. Women, so much more in touch with their bodies, so much more sensual than men, they just know that this is nonsense. But that's why in this age of Christian feminism, Paul has become the Christian woman's public enemy number one. Friends, there is something seriously wrong here. Peter, in his excellent opening sermon on Romans, he skipped over Romans 1.26, where Paul says that because of sin, this is what he says, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged intercourse according to nature for intercourse beyond nature. And the same way also the men giving up intercourse according to nature with women were consumed with passion for one another and so on. Oh dear God, I hear you think, shall we leave now? But hang on, is this passage really a rip-roaring condemnation of homosexuality? If it is, why is it that for more than a thousand years the Christian church had no trouble with homosexuality whatsoever? Could it be, do you think, that they didn't notice these verses in the first chapter of Romans? There are, it is true, Many cases in the early church where nuns and monks were disciplined for homosexual activity. But 
they were not disciplined for being homosexuals. They were disciplined because they had broken their vows of celibacy. They had promised when they became monks and nuns to give themselves to God and to God alone. It would have been exactly the same had they engaged in heterosexual relationships because the rules are exactly the same for homosexuals and heterosexuals. But, of course, heterosexual activity is a bit tricky if you live in a nunnery. There are also plenty of accounts of married men and married women being disciplined by the church in those early centuries for having homosexual affairs. But they were not being disciplined for homosexuality. They were being disciplined for adultery. They had vowed on their marriage day they had vowed before God and the congregation to give their sexual attentions to one person and one person only. And they had broken their vows of faithfulness. Christian love is about faithful generosity. And they had been greedily unfaithful. Homosexuals, of course, are always a minority, one-fifth of the population most of the time. And when society needs people to blame, minorities always get it. Jews, blacks, widows, spinsters, simpletons, cripples, Muslims, albinos, etc., etc., and, of course, gays. But being an albino isn't a sin. It's just an excuse for wickedness. The crime is being different. And punishment comes via the lynch mob. Nazi Germany springs to mind from recent history, but uh, it happens every day of the week in our school playgrounds. People who are different get a hard, hard time. And it happens in our churches, too. It happens in our churches in Britain. It happens in our churches all over the world. People who are different get a hard time. And it's horrible. And it's hateful to God because it is not a sin to be different. So, as I say, until about 1300 AD and the Third Lateran Council, you will find it very hard indeed to find any cases at all of men and women being punished simply because they were homosexual. It just isn't there. Extraordinary. And then you ask, well, why isn't it there? And the answer to that is because unless you take note of two incredibly obscure verses in Leviticus, it isn't there in our Bibles either. Sodom and Gomorrah, I hear you mutter. Well, 
You look at Matthew 10, 15. Jesus, for one, doesn't think that the sin of Sodom has anything at all to do with homosexuality. Do you know, there isn't even a word for homosexuality in Greek or Latin. So, we have to ask, what on earth is going on in that rip-roaring passage from one Romans that Peter skipped over? Romans 1. Paul is protesting that these foolish people, thirsting for pleasure, have betrayed the rules of faithfulness. Married women have betrayed their marriage vows in order to have sexual encounters either with their women friends or with their female slaves. Maybe they found their husbands boring. Who knows? Women are so much more imaginative in these matters, don't you find? And the men, silly idiots, they've gone off and done the same thing in reverse. Maybe they wanted to get their own back. Who knows? Had they been unmarried, had they not been breaking their promises to God and to their partners, Paul would not have condemned them in the way he did. But they weren't unmarried. And that was a problem. And having gone through all that, I think to myself, it is quite surprising. In over 30 years of pastoral ministry, I have dealt within the church with nearly as many cases of marriage breakdown because a partner has gone off with, a husband or wife has gone off with a partner of their own sex, as I have with marriage breakdown where the husband or wife has gone off with a partner of the other sex. It is surprisingly common. And what Paul is dealing with in Romans is bang on for modern life. It really is. But then Paul wants to ask, why were they lured into this unfaithfulness? And his answer is very simple. His answer is greed. Greed, the driving force of our consumer-led economy, the never-ending craving for more. Greed, what we teach our children and grandchildren as we shower them with more and more things that they neither want nor need, when what they really, really need and want is the generosity of our love. Paul's letter to the Romans, as Peter explained to you, is about this astonishing, life-giving generosity of God that extends to everyone, even to you and me. And my friends, generosity and greed do not go well together. They really don't. Greed destroys generosity. Greed destroys love. Greed is literally a killer. Western greed is killing millions, even as we sit here 
this morning in material splendor. So Paul is saying in that seemingly lurid passage, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from my never-ending craving for more, which is killing me and killing those around me? So, it's okay for this foolish 60-year-old heterosexual married man to see a pretty woman and go, ooh. 60-year-old men do that sort of thing, you know. It's wonderful. It's fun. And it's what bodies are for. And it's okay. I like to think that such foolishness rather amuses my incredibly and indulgent and ingenerous wife. She knows, I know, which side my bread is buttered. But the moment my skipping about like a dog with two tails starts to cause Margaret distress, the moment my indulgence starts to undermine her generosity, then a line has been crossed and it's not okay anymore and it must stop. But as Paul makes clear, the rules for men and women are the same and the rules for homosexuals and heterosexuals are the same. One more point, if I may, because there is one thing it seems to me that Paul gets wrong, but Jesus gets right. Paul takes it for granted because he's a well-educated first-century Greek that greed is generated by the body. And because he believes that greed is generated by the body, that's why he is so relentlessly tough on the body. But Jesus, it seems to me, knows better. You know those really hard verses, but I say to you, he says in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, I say to you that whoever looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Does that mean that every time I see a pretty woman... And the glorious thing about being 60 is that there are so many more of them in the world than there used to be. Does that mean that every time I see a pretty woman and my silly heart skips a beat, I'm committing adultery? No, of course it doesn't. But it does mean that the moment Margaret starts to feel betrayed, not by my body, but by what's going on in my head, I've crossed that line and my greed, my self-indulgence, it's begun to destroy the very generosity by which I live. Her generosity to me. And again, it works exactly the same way for women as it does for men. As Jesus makes clear. So let's sum up this wonderful stuff in Romans. One, taking a cue from Isaac Watts, religion never was designed to make our pleasure less. There is nothing 
absolutely nothing in the world wrong with pleasure. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with bodies and what they do. The love of God, from Jesus dying on the cross, to everything that makes your life and my life worth living, the love of God is about God's faithful generosity. Romans 8.32, you might have it further on in this series, I don't know. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? The wonderful, saving, faithful generosity of God. And love is faithful generosity. And greed is a killer. So, to paraphrase and draw out what I've been saying about St. Paul, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from my never-ending craving for more, which is killing me and killing those whom I love? Thanks be to God, for I am rescued through the generosity of God who gave me Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen.